We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is the Talented Ladies Club founder, Hannah Martin. The Talented Ladies Club is dedicated to women and helping them start their own businesses. Hannah is an award-winning copywriter, a qualified psychotherapist, a hypnotherapist, and an NLP practitioner. One of the questions my witnesses on The Meaningful Life often ask is, what is trying to come into the world through you? Today, we're going to explore if this might be a business. Even if this is something that you have never considered, I would invite you to keep listening and be curious as we're living through times of great change, and that brings with it all sorts of unasked for opportunities. Now, I was brought up to expect that work was something that I did for somebody else rather than myself. What were your expectations leaving school or university? Oh, great question. I grew up with parents who were always self-employed. I don't remember my parents ever working for someone else. That said, that was more through necessity because my parents didn't have any qualifications. They were working class and that was the sort of work that they could get. And eventually they started their own business and, and did very well. Looking back, my parents are very entrepreneurial. But interestingly, because they didn't have any expectations placed on them by their family. When I left school, there were no expectations placed on me, ironically. And in fact, I remember my mum telling me when I was a teenager, insisting I learn Pittman's typing, because she said, you'll never be unemployed if you have Pittman's typing. And I remember thinking, I never want a job where I have to have Pittman's typing. So I didn't I didn't have any placed upon me. All I knew was actually interesting when you said about what's coming through us you know, in meaningful lives, I always wanted to be creative. I was always a very creative child. And for me, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I hadn't thought about business or being employed. I just wanted to do something creative and something that had meaning in my life. Gosh, I think we're quite similar because I actually wanted to do something creative, but I sort of thought that would be done through something else. I mean, I started my career in radio. You know, I had to get a job from somebody else. You don't just start your own radio station. But sort of in a way, 40 years later, this podcast is a bit like my own radio station, that it's a very different world from the world we were actually brought up in. And unless we're very careful, we can keep these sort of horses blinkers on and we can't actually see anything beyond finding a job from somebody else. And that actually is very limiting, isn't it? It is. But when you are younger, I guess, you know, when you're 17, 18, you don't think about studying, you think about getting a job. And when I was at school, it was all about what job are you going to get when you leave? So we're very much, it's ingrained in us, maybe less so today, but certainly when, when we were younger, ingrained in us to work for someone else. And I remember feeling very lost because coming from a, a working class family, my, my parents had a building company, there was nothing creative in my background at all. So I didn't have anyone to say, you could do this or you could do that. There was no template to follow. And I, I was lost for a while. Looking back now, as, as I don't know, maybe you do as well in your journey, you can see that everything happens, led you to where you are now. You're grateful for it. But when you are in your late teens, early 20s, if you haven't found your place, I remember feeling very distinctly that I'm not on a path, that you know, other people were on a path. They went to uni, they did a particular degree at uni, they left uni, got a job in that sector, and their lives were very much 
And now I see probably a, a little bit blinkered in that that's the only option for me. I think having a sense that you want something, but not knowing what that thing is, is actually quite a good thing because you you do explore more. And I think when you eventually find it, which is often a bit later, it's probably more true to who you are rather than thinking when you're seven or, you know, I want to be this particular career and then narrowing everything towards that. And that being the only thing. And, you know, that was the accepted norm or the desired standard that you were supposed to have when I was younger and certainly where I grew up. And, and I felt very lost and I felt like I wasn't on a path. And I said, now I look back and realize whatever you're doing is your path. And it may not feel like you found it, but that is, that is a path you're on. I'm thinking of a client I once had who felt that actually they were on a motorway and they knew exactly where they were going. And there were actually high barriers on either side of the motorway to stop them from actually leaving it. And that actually felt absolutely terrifying. And he changed that image to the wind through the trees can blow a million different directions. And I think it's really important to actually have that kind of image that you had of, you know, I didn't have a path, but actually that doesn't matter because as my client's image is, there's many different paths through the woods and actually each one of them is probably as valid as each other. True, but we, we like certainty as humans, don't we? We where uncertainty is often scary, but uncertainty is where potential lies. Yeah, and sometimes the certainty is other people's certainty <laughs> <laughs> rather than ours. You know, I want you to be a doctor. You know, I've, I've had so many people who are doing jobs their mothers wanted them to do or their fathers handed down to them. So how did you get from that slightly lost school leaver to starting the Talented Ladies Club? Oh gosh, that's, that was about 20 years. <laughs> so I think when I left school, I did an art degree because in my mind, my very narrow experience, creative equaled art. That was it. That right. was the only, you know, now I know creativity is the way you approach anything. So I did an art degree. It wasn't what my real passion. So I dropped out at the end of my second year, completely lost, very depressed, went to a careers counsellor and she said, well, you know, you've got A-levels, you didn't finish your degree, therefore get a job in an office somewhere and be grateful for that. And I remember thinking, if that's my life, <laughs> it's not like they want. And even my parents were like, well, you know, you can't expect to have things. You know, you just got to take what's there. So I saved up for a year and I bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong. Never been there before, but I just thought, you know, if I'm going to have to have a job I hate and a no career, I'd rather have it somewhere exciting. And it was there. I spent five years there and it was there I discovered advertising. And when I went in, my boyfriend at the time was an art director and I went in on a Saturday, he wanted to pick something up. When I walked into the creative studio, I felt at home. You know, this was what I wanted. And at that time I was a PA on a magazine. So I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't want to be a journalist. So I became an advertising copywriter. Loved it. I mean, that was the best job ever. It really matched my personality. I did really well, very successful. And then I had children. And this is where this is where Tantalus Club comes in. So I was a single mom with my son, so I had to work. I've done both ways. I've done the career woman who pays someone to raise her child. You know, I had no pair. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there for any of my son's milestones because I couldn't be. It wasn't a choice. That was all I had. I, I had to bring the money in. And then when I had my daughter, who's 12 now, was my now husband. I decided I didn't want to work in London anymore. I freelanced from home. And that's when I started meeting a lot of women who were very successful in their careers, very passionate about what they did. Work wasn't just somewhere where they earned money. It was part of their identity. And all of these women really struggled to make their careers work as mothers. 
And I realized that there were thousands of women, maybe hundreds of thousands of women all around the country and around the world who were in a similar position, who'd had careers that they loved and were locked out of it. And at that time, there was nothing inspirational online. You know, now there's plenty of wonderful stuff that can inspire you, can help you. At the time, there was nothing. It was pretty much, you used to have a career. Sorry, you know, take what you can Goodbye. get. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the real catalyst for me in, in starting TLC was two mothers at my son's school. One had been a solicitor, one had been an architect working in London. They were now in the town that we live in, both looking for part-time admin work because they thought that was all they could expect to get around school hours. And I just thought that was the, the straw that went the camel's back. I thought, if no one else is going to create something to inspire these women and to empower them, then I will. I had no business plan. I had no experience. I just had a passion to create something. And what a fabulous name, the Talented Ladies Club, because I think that there's sort of quite a lot of shame involved when you've sort of stepped out and you're, as the famous phrase goes, just a mum. And I think that actually that name is a bit of a shame buster. Was that what you were trying to do? Absolutely. I mean, some of the names that I looked at was not just a mum, more than a mum, you know, when looking for a name for the business, because it was very much that, you know, I'm a, I'm a mum, but I'm still me. You know, we don't lose ourselves. You know, your ambition doesn't, doesn't end up on the delivery room floor when you have a baby. You're still that same person. You can't get detached from that in the very early weeks and months of motherhood. And some women, because they're so detached from the life they have, they can lose their confidence and they can lose their sense of identity. It can also be an incredibly creative and freeing time because having a natural pause from, you said your client being on a motorway and some people have spent their lives sort of living the expectations of others or following a path they then felt they needed to commit to and having that pause can be a time when women sort of say, well, actually, do I want to go back to that what I had before? You know, it's, it's an opportunity to start something new. So you do see a lot of brilliantly creative businesses started by mothers because it can be a time of great change. And why do you think uh, women think about what they lack rather than the skills they have? Good point. I mean, that's a big issue. And it is not just around motherhood. I mean, it's that classically known truth that men will see a job advert and they'll think, oh, I've got 10% of the requirements, I'll apply for it. And women will think, oh, I'm lacking 10% of the requirements, I won't apply for it. There is a difference. It's a generalisation because there are men and women who buck that trend on both sides. But women do tend to, you're right, they are more inclined to look at what they don't have than what they do have. I, I once spoke to someone who worked for an organisation that supported directors and producers of films and movies in the UK. And they noticed that on the career tra tra trajectories of men and women, there was a group of women dropped off and men continued to rise. And they wanted to work out why it was so they could address it. The assumption was, because it was around mid-30s, it was when women had children. And certainly mm -hmm. a portion of that would have been true. The greater problem was not that, was actually where women would get their first job and they would maybe they'd work in documentaries, for example, or they might work on, let's say, documents on nature. And then they would think, well, what I really want to do is make feature films. But the women would think, an opportunity would come up, with I can't go for it because I do documentaries on nature. Whereas men would think, wow, the documentary feature films, I'd be brilliant at that. <laughs> I've never done it before, but I'm going to go for it. And they discovered that that was a greater truth, that women were more inclined to stick to what they knew and be less willing to take a risk than men were. Men would tend to overestimate their abilities, women would underestimate them. And you do work with men as well as women in the Talented Ladies Club. Do you find a difference between what you're doing with the men from what you're doing with the women? To be fair, I don't work with enough men to to be able to gonna give a bigger picture because of the name of our business. It does tend to <laughs> you've been quite a brave man. 
But so, yes, that's a. I think if my clients were going to be women, I think I might be walking through the talented ladies' door. Yeah, so I, I, I love working with men. I mean, most of my career, actually, up until I started Tan Ladies Club, I'd always worked in male-dominated environment. My parents had a building company. So this is actually the first time I've really worked with women. I, I've worked with far more men than I have women in my life. And how are you finding working with other women? I love it. Women are very community-minded and they're very supportive. I did love working with men. I, I find... I'm gonna. <laughs> there are huge gross generalizations you can make. Yeah. I found working with men very easy because men tend to speak as they find they don't tend to overthink quietly and then harbour feelings about something. They'll tend to tell you what they think of you, which was easy to work in that environment with men. But like I said, that is a very simplification of it. But I love working with women. I say I think they're community minded. They're supportive. We've got a fabulous audience of women and all the women that join my courses I've loved working with. Now we're talking specifically about mothers at the moment, but obviously you're there for all women. But what skills do you think mothers who've perhaps been out of the workplace for a bit have that would be useful for them when they're, if they're thinking at this precise moment, hmm, this might be interesting. I might think about starting my own business. What skills do they have that they might not be aware of? Oh gosh, I mean, a wealth of soft skills. I actually wrote an article once, like 17 skills you could put on your CV after becoming a mother. You know, things like <laughs> getting a toddler out of the door in the morning to nursery, the skill sets that are required, the organisation, the timekeeping, the chivying along, the negotiation. I mean, you could probably be a good hostage negotiator if you've lived <laughs> the toddler. So there's a lot of skills that you pick up that we don't recognise and don't credit in managing a household and managing a family and, and dealing with children that women do have. And women are great problem solvers especially once you've had children. So I think there's a wealth of soft skills that women don't recognise that they have that you need when starting a business. And I would say another one I see from my female clients is they're very good at researching and finding solutions for problems as well. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, when you bring a child home, I remember the biggest where I had my, my son. I sat looking at him. I didn't even take him out of his car seat. I, looked, I put him on the lounge floor back from hospital, looked at him and thought, what on earth do I do? How do I keep this thing alive? How do I know when it wants to eat? How do I know literally what to physically do with it? There's no manual for it. So from day one, you are solving problems. You are constantly put into situations that you have no experience in, no skill sets. You have to find solutions. You ask people, you ask people that you know that have got children, you go and look online, you read books, and then you just learn and you learn through making mistakes. So yeah, it's a great training ground for starting a business. And I think the other thing that mothers have is a great network as well. And I think that's useful for starting a business too. Am I right about that? Absolutely. I mean, yes, they do have a network on a, a level where you can usefully network to make other business, but also network people, different skills that can help you, but you can ask for help and support. And women are very good at asking, generally good at asking for help and support. There's that famous thing where, you know, men get lost, they refuse to ask the directions because they don't like asking for help or admitting I don't know something. Whereas women tend to be much better at it and they do have wide networks especially once you have children you've got your maybe your antenatal group you've got your baby groups you've got your nursery mums your school mums most of my friends today have come through having children I used to live in a village and the two ways to enter the village was either to have children at the school mm. or get a dog those were the two choices to meet people <laughs> absolutely and a dog's much easier than a child <laughs> I don't know, but I would say a dog can actually be quite difficult as well. (laughs) 
So I think that one of the greatest barriers to starting a business is what is called imposter syndrome. So can you tell us what imposter syndrome is and explain how we can beat it? Oh, how to sum that up really quickly. So imposter syndrome is where you don't, you believe you're an imposter, basically. You don't believe that you have skills or you, or you can do things you actually can. Often you can. So you believe that people see you as one thing, but reality, you're something very, very different. How you overcome imposter syndrome, that's a very big question. Part of it is logical and rational and part of it is emotional. So the logical and rational part of it is literally to sit down and write, to bring out all these fears that we have in the back of our heads and bring them into the daylight and examine them. And then actually rationally write where they're wrong. So it might be, for example, you know, I'm not good with people might be one. And then you might go, well, actually, I've got loads of friends and I, I have a good rapport with the person in the paper shop or by my paper. You know, you, you can find exceptions to that. Probably quite easy for most these things. And write them down, actually look at them, bring them out. So look at these things. Well, actually, no, I am good with people. Because what does being good with people mean? Well, it actually means being able to talk to someone. I can talk to people. People like me. I like people. I ask people to help me and they help me. That means I'm good with people. And the other thing is, to actually change how we think you feel about ourselves. One thing that often we don't realise is that thoughts and feelings are habits. You know, we accept we have physical habits like smoking or biting our nails. We know we acquire those habits and we know we can get rid of them. It's not necessarily easy. It doesn't happen overnight, but we can change habits physically. And our thoughts and feelings are exactly the same. So any thought or feeling that you have, if you don't want to have it, if it's not serving you, you can choose to get rid of it. It takes a while. And it takes doing things like rewiring your brain. It takes about 60 days to, to rewire your brain. But you can consciously change thoughts and feelings that you have. And initially, those thoughts and feelings, when you consciously change it, will feel uncomfortable. Because however uncomfortable it is to have a negative thought or feeling about yourself, we're so used to it, it's familiar to us. And there's something quite comforting about going into that, isn't that, going into that space. And we think that because it's coming out of our own head, it must be the truth. And... It might not be the truth. I often actually, uh, when somebody puts something really negative down, like I've got nothing to offer, I suggest turning those negative statements into questions. So instead of I've got nothing to offer, the question becomes, what might I have to offer? And then you can begin to write a list of things that you might have to offer. And that way you can begin to challenge the thoughts. So I always say, accept the feelings. <laughs> I feel an imposter. Well, join the human race because we all feel like imposters sometimes. You know, what do I know about starting a business? Well, actually, as it turns out, quite a bit. But, you know, at the beginning, I didn't think I knew anything because, you know, I had no preparation whatsoever. I just sort of launched myself into my businesses. If I, you know, go back, I'd do it differently. But it's amazing once you actually begin to challenge and you turn it from a negative statement into a question, how much better that can be. That's a great approach, yes. So I think it might be quite useful to perhaps give us an inspiring story of somebody you've worked with to give us a sense of what can be achieved. Can you think of one? I can think of myself, actually, in a very similar thing to you, because I actually mulled over TLC for 18 months before I actually started it. And like you, I thought, I'm not an entrepreneur. For me, an entrepreneur is Richard Branson. You're born an entrepreneur. You know, we hear these famous stories of business owners who, you know, they were selling marbles in primary school at five and made a thousand pounds at the time they were 10. And I thought, if you weren't doing that, you're not an entrepreneur. So in my head, I was not an entrepreneur, even though in retrospect, I look back and I, I was raised by entrepreneurs. I grew up in a home where my parents never had a salary from someone else. And it wasn't until actually my friend Carrie got so sick of me talking about it. 
<laughs> but she said, I'm, I'll start this bloody business with you because you, you've got to get it started. And a, and a friend of hers who had just trained as a business coach she was looking for someone to do four free sessions with to get her up and running. So I said, okay, well, I'll give this a go. And then four months later, TLC was live. And like you, you know, I realise now that you're not anything until you actually do it. You don't drive a car or you don't walk until you learn how to drive a car and learn how to walk. And you're not good. And the best you know, we start walking, we fall over so many times. Can you imagine a toddler saying, I'm not a walker? <laughs> you know, I've fallen over so many times. I'm just going to give up. Just wheel me around the rest of my life on, on, a, on a chaise long or something like that in a wheelchair. I'm not going to walk. But we don't, you know, because at that age, we don't have that conscious thinking. We just walk. And as long as we're physically able to, we all learn how to walk. And we all become walkers. We weren't born walkers. We learn, and, and, and it's the same with anything. And particularly for me, starting a business, I would now say, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. Like you, I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. Were I to go back and do it again, it would look very differently. But I couldn't get it right in the first place because I hadn't learned at that point. And I wasn't an entrepreneur until I became one, until I tried it. So, you know, it, it is a necessary part. Part of imposter syndrome as well is being prepared to fail and accept that you will fail. And that's part of the journey. But you never get good unless you do fail or unless you're prepared to fail. So going from the idea into reality isn't going to be a straight line, Is I think is what you're saying. Am I Absolutely. right about that? Yes. And, and if it was, what have you learnt? I mean, if, if it is, you know, we always say, oh, you know, it, the lucky people are the ones that go straight from zero to 100 miles an hour. Nothing happens in between. It's really easy for them. But I would challenge that. And I would say the really lucky ones are the ones who get the experiences along the way. Because actually, sometimes when things come really easy to you, that's when you can get that imposter syndrome. You know, let's say I had a rich father who gave me a business and I was running a business that was given to me. And I might feel a bit of an imposter because I hadn't really started it myself. So sometimes the failures and going through that can actually really help with imposter syndrome. Give us an example of a mistake that you made, because I think that's rather good to hear rather than just the inspiring stories. Oh, gosh, so many. So I didn't have a financial model when we started out. I spent many years working on the business before it made proper money. And I, one mistake I made was I was scared of selling. I had this idea of what a salesman was and it was something seedy and icky and sales were horrible. So I made the mistake of not selling my stuff because I, I didn't want to turn my wonderful audience who read my content into purchases because I felt that it wasn't a nice change. And the reframe for that for me was, well, and this is how I, I teach people, teach people sales now. Selling is simply problem solving. Every business solves a problem. And all you are doing is saying, here's a solution to your problem if you would like to buy it. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Thank you. So let's imagine that somebody's sort of got an idea that has been going along in the back of their head somewhere. Here's what my mother said she was going to do, but never actually did. She was going to make a particular kind of cake called Guinness cake, which had a lot of Guinness poured into it. It was a sort of fruit cake, and it was really lovely. And she kept on talking about how she was going to turn this into business, but never did. So let's have my mother's business that she never started as our example. How do I go from that idea of, you know, this is a really nice cake that I've got a recipe for that everybody loves, and I think I'd like to do something with it. How do I start? Okay. So there are a few things that you really need to start any business. You need buyers and you need profit and you need a place to sell. What I would say to anyone is get a business plan. You can get free templates from most banks have them online because a business plan is a great way to give you a framework to think about all the areas you need to consider in your business and any holes that you've missed. So for your mum, I would say, great. So you've got a cake. How much does it cost you to produce that cake? Okay. Mm -hmm. And how long do you spend on that cake? How long do you spend producing it? But not only that, how long do you spend wrapping it up? Where are you going to sell it also? 
How much is it going to cost you to sell via there? How much time is it going to take you to actually physically deliver it there? And who's going to buy that cake? How much are they prepared to pay for a cake like that? Are there enough of those people? Why will they buy your cake? What competition is there? So all the general kind of stuff that you do in your business, looking at, and, and the biggest mistake people often make is they look at the audience and they oh, I'm brilliant at making cakes. I'm just going to sell them. People are going to love my cake because my friends tell me it's really good. So you need to have an audience. Well, they might look for an audience, but what I often find with people is they don't look at the money. So they build a business. And I've worked with people that have come to me and they say, I've got a really good business. You know, I've got 100 customers a month. They love my Guinness cake. It's selling like hotcakes. And then I would say, okay, let's look at the money. And they're making three pounds a month because <laughs> because they haven't priced it properly. And they haven't worked out that actually they're selling their cake for 10 pounds, but it's costing them nine pounds sixty to make it. Or it's costing them four pounds to make it, but they haven't factored in their time. They're basically working for free. So Working out all the important areas of your business, making sure you've got a market, know when you're going to sell it, but don't forget the money because the, the kind of the, the big program I work with people on is people who've got a business that is up and running, that has customers, but it's not earning them money. And I work on a transformational 12 week program. And it's usually one thing that doesn't work in a the business. They've got their systems wrong. They haven't got quite the right audience, but for a lot of them, it's just pricing. Their pricing's not right. Well, welcome to my world. I often do things that. <laughs> end up costing me money rather than actually bring any money in. And there are some things that are lost leaders. There are some parts of your business that might not bring in very much money, but are an essential cog for something else. So for example, with TLC, I have the site and it's free to read. And for years, my friends would say, why do you post articles every day? You don't make money out of the site. You know, you should just focus on because like I would sell training, just do the training, forget the site. But I had this kind of sense that the site was a golden goose. That I had to keep working on it. And I, I was really, I'm a very stubborn person. So I did work for many, many years for, for free on that site until one day, actually, and this was a business coach that I was working with. She got me to record all the hours I spent on my business and then record all my income streams. So to record the hours I work on each income stream as well. I then worked out that actually there was a part of my business that I dismissed because it was, you know, so 50 pounds here, 50 pounds there, you know, whereas I could sell a course 300 pounds or 2000 pounds. So I, I was quite dismissive of this. Didn't really do much about it. Hour for hour, that was my most profitable product. And it was to do with the site. So all I did then was I created some systems that meant that I could run that part of my business in minimal time. That's now worth several thousand pounds a month to my business. No extra time spent on it. And it was just a case of working out where money was coming from. But, but prior to that, that was a, a part of this that wasn't making me money. But I knew in my gut that it was really important to retain that. And ultimately, it did make, it did make me money. So I said at the top of this interview that this is a type of great change. Is it also a good time to start a business? Yes. Oh my God, yes. Recessions and depressions are great times to start a business. Obviously, the time of business you start, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the best time to start a restaurant in the last year. Oops. <laughs> no. Although that said, there are some restaurants that have really innovated. And I think it does sort the sheep from the west. Right. I always mix up my metal. But the, sheep from, the, the sheep, sheep from, from the, the goats. Wolves, like, anyway, if you're creative and you're a great problem solver, I always think that there are two types of people like, I was like a front door person and a back door person. I'm a back door person. Oh. <laughs> What's the difference between a front door person okay. and a back door person? So the person? front door person does everything right. You know, they they get a degree, they they wait for jobs to come out in the newspaper, they apply for jobs with their perfect CV, they do everything in the right way. You know, they knock on the front door. I go around the back, like I'm not the kind of person for whom opportunities 
naturally have come. And my family aren't. But we're the survivors. We're the kind of people that we don't wait for a job to be advertised. You know, this is how I got into advertising. I just phoned up the executive creative director, Ogilvy Mather, and said, can I come and see you? <laughs> I want to be a writer. And he sort of went, okay, had a meeting with him. I could see he really wasn't that, you know, interested. I'd written a few things. What app? absolutely rubbish looking back, but I thought I was great at the time. I wasn't a writer then. And he wanted to get rid of me. And I thought, I, you know, I'm not walking out of here without something. So I, I said, look, I'm a fast learner. Give me a test. I know I can do this. And I think to shut me up, he sent me away with a test. Did the test. He loved it. He hired me. And that was it. There was no job at Ogilvy. I just phoned someone up and got a conversation with them. And I'm naturally a shy person. I mean, if anyone's just thinking, oh, it's okay for you, you're clearly very, very confident. I'm not. That came from a place of necessity. I knew I wanted to work in advertising, but I also knew I didn't stand a chance working in advertising. And I was terrified to make that phone call and terrified to go into that meeting. But I knew if I wanted something, I had to make it happen. And that, to me, that's a kind of like, the front door person does everything right and they wait for opportunities to apply for them. Whereas the back door person just is a bit, maybe it's a housebreaker. Where's the, the crack of the window I can see in? And for those type of people, you know, problem solving type people and people who don't wait for things to happen, they're going to make their own opportunities. These times are great for people like us because all the front door people are now stumped going, Oh, you know, and I've seen in my own town, I've seen a real difference between small cafes and restaurants owned by entrepreneurs who were very successful before lockdown, had literally just shut their doors and gone, oh, we can't sell in the normal way. We're shutting. Other ones, they've done takeaways, they've done picnics on the beach delivered to you. They've really, really innovated and have really thrived in this time. And it really has shown the difference between people who are problem solving and look for opportunities and make opportunities themselves. And these are great times for those people because when other people have sort of sat back and gone, oh, we'll just wait for everything to blow over and we can't do anything. If you are someone who's got ideas, a creative and a problem solver, this is when you thrive. So I think now is a great time or can be a great time to start a business. So how do you deal with keeping your relationship good and also having a business. Because one of the things I really liked about your site is that when I looked at it, these business people were human beings. They had families, they had children, and you have to have a good balance because otherwise you're going to be terribly creative in the outside world and terribly successful, and you're going to be miserable at home or the rest of your family are going to be miserable. How do you actually get that balance right? Brilliant question. And I haven't always got it right. In fact, I reached a point several years ago before the business started making money and I was working on it seven days a week and I was feeling really resentful. And that was my thing because it was my business and and I was doing it. And I felt really heavy and I realized that was up to me. It was up to me to change the way I thought and felt about it. And, and I, so I chose, I, I chose a word for the year and I was lighter because I felt really heavy at that point. So for me, it's about boundaries. It's about knowing where the business ends and my life begins. You know, I, I have an office. I come into my office. I leave work at 3.30 to go be home for my daughter to get home from school. And then I don't work. I cook dinner. I do things I love. You know, my husband is so bored of being on business now. So I don't tell him about it. I talk to my friends about it and that's fine. I don't expect him to be interested in it. So I value my relationship and I do things that I enjoy with my husband and I keep my business very separate. I used to think the thing of success is bleeding everything into each other. You know, like I could cook dinner and send emails. Isn't that great? Well, no, my mind wasn't really on the dinner and it wasn't really on the emails. And my husband just constantly saw me with my head and a phone working when I should have been, could have been spending time emotionally and physically present in the home. So I tend to now kind of switch off. And if I'm in my work, I'm fully in my work. 
And if I'm cooking, I'm fully in cooking. And if I'm watching TV with my husband, I'm fully watching TV with my husband. So it's about recognizing those boundaries, respecting them and keeping business where it is. And also not letting business control your emotions outside business. If things aren't going well or whatever, leave it in the business as hard as that might feel initially. Don't let that carry on to the rest of your life. And I think that's really good advice. As I say, I think we've been told that we've got to multitask. Mm. And I think what you're saying is don't multitask, focus and then switch off. Yes. And you can have, you know, two hours of intense work on your business. And also, you know, you can, like at weekends, I'll sometimes go, I'm going to go into office a couple of hours because I want to get this done. But the rest of my weekend, I'm in the family. I'm fully with my family and friends and doing things. So those two hours, I can get a lot done in those two hours because I've carved that out rather than trying to go, I did five minutes here and five minutes there and never really getting in flow and completing a task. Mm, I love that. I've had a, a client just recently talking to me about the image of the gardener and the flower. And he felt that in every relationship, there tends to be one person who is the flower and their partner looks after them, gardens. And he and his partner had both been flowers in their previous <laughs> relationship. So both creative people. Mm. And the issue is how you balance being a gardener and a flower. Now, I have this picture of a lot of people who'll be listening to this program and actually thinking, this might be right for me. Mm-hmm. They've probably been the gardener rather than the flower. How do you think you can actually assert your right to have a bit of flower time? That comes down to mutual respect, doesn't it? And it goes deeper than just about work. So first of all, the balance in a relationship, because actually you, you were both given, you were both taken a healthy relationship and you're supposed to be respectful of that. There will be times of imbalance where maybe one has got more need than others. Maybe one's ill or a parent is ill and they're going to require more. And it's not a 50, you know, you don't sit there counting up, right? I've done 50 gardener things for you. Therefore, I've got 50 flower points. But it's also your responsibility to speak up if you don't feel your needs are being met. Because often your partner might not even know that. They might think your relationship is fine. They might not see that they are taking and you are giving. So I think you have responsibility to say, this is how I'm feeling right now. And this is what I would like to change. And how can we make that happen? So I think if you don't feel you're getting enough from your relationship, it, it is your responsibility to speak up because your partner might not be aware of that. And I think the whole image of gardener and flower is quite a good way of actually having this conversation because, you know, I do more for you than you do for me sort of sounds a little bit transactional, but somehow a flower and a gardener, they have an intimate kind of relationship. You know, there's no point being a gardener if you've got no flowers and flowers need gardeners. They're sort of intertwined with each other and it's really quite a beautiful image. And I think it gives you a chance to have the conversation in a slightly different kind of way. It removes you exactly from you and what's happening in your relationship to kind of this image. I think, yeah, it's a very nice way of having that conversation. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, one of the great advantages of becoming a member of our supporters circle is, first and foremost, I might have a decent business plan. Oh dear. But you get a lot because we solve problems for you as well. 
here we are, I'm doing a bit of sailing, you know, that taking your advice, solving problems. And um, one of the ways we can help you solve a problem is if you are a member of our supporters circle, you can write in to us with a problem. And there are extra benefits at the higher level as well. So here's a letter that's been written in for the two of us to talk about, Hannah. On paper, I should have a lot of confidence. I have a good job and I've carved out a career in a man's world, but I wonder if I've got what it takes to go out on my own. I admire all the women who have become their own bosses and launched a business, but something holds me back. Perhaps it's that I don't know what kind of business, or maybe I'm just tired from fighting to be taken seriously by my male colleagues. I suppose if you're knocked back enough, you begin to be affected by it. How do I dig myself out of this negative headspace? It's not just work, but in other areas of my life. I've stopped believing that I have anything to offer. I think that quite a lot of people in their middle years will actually be able to respond quite fully to this idea. I've stopped believing in myself. Mm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, I, I know so many people who could have written this. There's a few things here. So I think a sense of feeling stuck and lost as part of it. And I would say to address that in itself, because all these things need to happen simultaneously to move you from it. Rediscover your passions, explore new things. If you're not sure what you want to do in a business and you're not sure what you love doing, start trying new things. You know, it's that cliche, join a kind of an adult education thing, but, but join clubs, do things because sometimes finding your real passion could come from actually just trying something new. And it might not be not directly that thing, but that thing might be something else. So I'd say, first of all, branch out in your life, you know, do more creative things. So you might discover something you're really passionate about. And that would also bring you out of this kind of where your life is at the moment. We might, like you might small with very similar people that you might be sort of stuck in your, with the same colleagues or with the same family and friends. They've got a certain particular opinion of you or you think they do. So first of all, there's that. Secondly, there's a few exercises I've done with people. One of them is really, really interesting, that actually is a really emotional exercise to do, is to ask... Right, let's do it now. I will be your subject for this. Okay, so go and ask three or four people that you trust and are close to, to write down four or five things that they think are great about you. Why do they like you? What are you good at? So what do you like and what am I good at? Yes, what are you good at and what do they like about you? It's really telling what comes back. I mean, literally, I have people usually cry at this point uh, in good tears because we, we definitely, we're not very good at sort of telling people how we feel about them. You know, we're so used to sort of like, oh, you know, you haven't done the washing up again. You never do the washing up. You know, we're actually, we're with someone because you're really kind and you're really thoughtful. You're great company. You're really funny. And you always find interesting things to do at the weekends. You're a brilliant cook, you know, and it's really heartening to hear these things about ourselves that often in life that people don't, they think about them, but they they're in our unconscious, but it brings us, that's a really brilliant exercise to do. You can see yourself really differently. One of the things that I get people to do if they are really stuck on what they want to do next is to look at the last few jobs that they've had and write every single task they've done in that job, even down to send emails to clients, really granular level, and then do a column of good at them and like them and tick all the ones they think they're good at and all the ones they like, and then look at anything with two ticks and then put those skills together. And like, what collectively, what do all these things look like? Are there any common patterns? 
another really great exercise is to go back and remember what did you like doing as a child? You know, were you really outdoorsy? Oh, yes. You know, did you climb trees and you know play make believe? Like, you know, cowboys and Indians. Did you like jigsaw puzzles and, and and knitting? And going back and rediscovering because often as children we are naturally drawn without judgment to things we love, and we're really good at often the things we love because the more you do something, the better you're going to get at it, and the more attention you're going to give to it, and more concentration. But as we get older, we start second guessing. Oh, it's not cool to knit. I don't knit. Oh, I'm not a creative. The teacher, I'm not a creative person. So therefore, I can't draw. And we start closing doors down and we become disengaged from our natural things. So go back. And, you know, again, I get people to make a list of everything they love doing as a child. I've been looking at that list. What commonalities are there? What does it strike up? And often it's about just reawakening things. And what I would do is I would say, consciously sit and consciously look at these things and think then put it away and go and do something else and let your subconscious work through it allow time for thoughts you know baths and showers and walks are great time things to bubble up where we're we're physically engaged we've got physical stimulation but we're not really using our mind and it sort of allows our brain to come up with things so i I would do all those things and then in, in terms of how we see ourselves. There's something I used to do as a teenager that I thought I had magic powers. When I, yes. And when I qualified as a hypnotherapist, I suddenly realized, oh, I've been naturally doing this thing that I do in hypnotherapy with people. So when I was young, I was really shy really quiet. I had very poor social. I, I have ADHD. So like many girls ADHD, I, I, did, I didn't have social skills, very good social as a child. So I didn't have many friends. I really struggled. And I was very short for my age. I said, hand me down clothes. We were poor. I really, I was not the child anyone aspired to be friends with at school. So I came into my teenage years with this. I didn't know how to I didn't have friends, I didn't know how to make them, you know, and I had this, I see other women around me or other people around me and think, I wish I was like her. I wish, you know, I was popular and people liked me and I found these things easy. So in my head, I made an alter ego and I had this other character that had a life and she was very like me, but she was all the things I wasn't. What was she called? She was called Hannah as well, but she had a different surname. So so she, she was like me, but slightly different you know in my head she looked like Kate Moss and and she and she was you know very different but there were still connections to me you know she still had my feelings but she manifested in the world in a different way and I live with this character she's still alive in my head now I still still have her I lived there for years you know I spent a lot of time on my own because I have any friends and and I would just cycle around the villages I grew up in the country and in my head I was living this this character's life every night when I went to bed I'd fall asleep with these scenarios and then a really weird thing happened as I hit my late teens and I went to art college and I met other freaks like me, was that my life, in my life, things that I would dream about in this alternative Hannah's world would come true in my actual life. It, obviously, you know, I wasn't Kate Moss and I didn't hang out with rock stars, but I, I did go on tour with well-known, but I, you know, I, I, I kind of entered the world. And I, one day I thought, this is really freaky. I wonder I had the power to make things come true. And I, I also changed as well. I started to become much more like this other hand. I became more confident. I learned social skills. I started to get friends. I traveled. I did things that were so, that the Hannah that I had grown up with would never have done those things. Wanted to, but would never have done them. Now looking back, I was basically rewiring my brain because my brain can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality. And I was just rewiring all those parts of my brain. And I spent long enough imagining I was this Hannah that I actually rewired my brain to become her. And this is what I, when I talk to people now who are lacking in confidence or they don't like some part of themselves, they feel like it's limiting them. And I just say, I used to call it videos. I, I said, make videos in your head. That's what I did. Just create an alternative version of you that's living the life that you want 
and make it multi-sensory. And when you go to bed at night, I still do now. When I go to bed at night, I fall asleep every night living a fantasy world. That's wonderful. That is a, I mean, who doesn't want to create their own fantasy world? So, so what's Hannah up to at the moment then? This this super <laughs> Hannah, what's she up to at the moment? <laughs> well, she's not living in work. Well, she is living in Worthing, it, but she's traveling the world. She's, you know, she's not stuck in a lockdown, I can tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, it, it, it's like my life, but just amplified my life on steroids. So what I say to people is, you know, so I would say to anyone who's listening to this, when you go to sleep at night, creates fantasy world. Anytime, like if you're doing housework or you're driving somewhere, anytime when you're so physically occupied, but your brain is kind of your free thinking, go into this world. And if you do it enough over a period of time that you'll start to notice that you're thinking and feeling differently and that the kind of things that, that this character is experiencing, you can experience too. And I think that is so important. You have to dream it before you can actually do it. And people actually stop the film before it's even got going. Or which are the opposite. We, we catastrophize. So it's the opposite to that. So actually, we turn the dream into a nightmare. Yeah. So we think, you know, no one likes me. And then I go into, I'm never going to get anything at work. This is the classic thing is public speaking. So if you are treating, working with someone to public speaking, what it tends to do is they've got to do a big talk to their company. Oh, no, I'm going to walk on stage. No one's going to laugh at my jokes. I'm not going to know what to say. And they kind of create this video in their head of the experience it's going to be with all their worst fears. And they're doing the opposite. They're rewiring their brain, but in the worst possible way. So of course, when they do go and stand on that stage, they're kind of bringing all that negativity there. And they're kind of almost guessing, oh, this joke's going to bomb. So they read it in a really poor way. It does bomb. Then it kind of reinforces all their fears, which anyway, they carry on. So what we tend to do is we tend to go down these rabbit holes of the worst thinking. And the thing is with that is that it's quite comfortable to think that, especially if you can get a sort of self-pitying kind of thing going. It, it does feel quite, you know, well, of course, my boyfriend's going to cheat on me because everyone else has. And then I'm going to find, you know, like he's going to leave me and then I'm never going to get another boyfriend again. And I'm going to die in a maid with cats. And, and we, te- we do that. And of course, that's rewiring our brain to expect that, to act in a way that's going to man- somehow, you know, manifest that, make choices that are going to lead to that outcome. Or we're going to sabotage our relationship because of course he's going to cheat on us. So we're going to look for evidence of cheating or we're going to keep him at arm's length because we're going to fear he's cheating. So he doesn't feel connected to us and maybe he does cheat. So what you know, we tend to is the opposite. So we all have a choice. If there's something in your life that doesn't make you happy, if there's a thing about yourself or a thought process doesn't make you happy, it will feel comfortable because it's familiar to you. We're like, oh yeah, poor me. And I'm going down that thought process again. We'll just stop it. And just think, actually, how do I want to feel? It will feel uncomfortable when you first start thinking about something great. If you have spent years doing the opposite, it will feel weird and it, your mind will resist it. Your mind will want to go back to the familiar thought pattern. So you, when you start doing it, it will be hard to do. I always say it's like a cornfield. If you're going to cross a cornfield every day, the first day you get to that cornfield, there's no path. You have to really bash through those, that corn to get to the side and it's hard work. The next day you come to the cornfield, you could walk anyway through it, but you started, you, there's a bit of a path from yesterday. So you go down that way. After a month, there's, there's no corn growing. There's a clear path. So anyone who comes to that cornfield is going to cross there. Well, say you don't want to cross there one day. That's the old thought pattern and feelings that you've got. So you have to create a new one. But the first time you do that new one, it's hard. You're bashing through the corn again. And it's much easier to give up and just say, I'm just going to get in the path that's already there. But if you keep on at that new path, then eventually the old one will grow back and the new one will come the default way. So how long do you think it takes to dream of Super Hannah to begin to make a difference? Yeah, I was talking to someone recently who does a similar but slightly different version of this. And she's, I mean, this is sort of, I 
did myself and then learned retrospectively that actually what it was. She learned from a science perspective. She did it 67 days. Oh, that's very precise. <laughs> very precise. <laughs> <laughs> On the 68th day, it's all magically done. <laughs> But I think you'd got over that initial awkwardness because I could imagine doing that, but um, I think I'd give up after a couple of days. And so I think it's actually useful to have 67 days written down so that you actually keep going. Yeah, two months. Yeah. So thank you very much for being a really excellent witness today. What gives your life meaning? Because we've been talking about helping other people. Is that what gives your life meaning or is it something else? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I pondered this question and I actually had two things that gave my life meaning. One is... We can have them both. Okay, great. Okay. People, it's our relationships. What matters in the world? When we look back at the memories in life, it's all about people, isn't it? We don't think, oh, what a great TV I had. You know, like I had a 42-inch TV. Wasn't that a brilliant TV? You know, we think about the people we watch the TV with, but, you know, it's other relationships that give us joy and meaning and, and wealth. And the other thing is food. So Tell I, me about food. Oh, love it. So... I've travelled a lot in my life, all around the world. I've lived overseas. And when I think about the travels, I remember two things, the people I've met and the food I've eaten. Food is joy. And at the times in my life when, when I've been pregnant, I had morning sickness, or right now I'm wearing a brace, I can only take it off for two hours a day. And I realise how much of my day I spend eating and how much joy food gives me. So people and food <laughs> give my life meaning. And if you can put the two together, that seems even better. Dinner party with friends, what better? So thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. But this isn't actually where the conversation ends, because if you're a member of our supporters club, you'll find out three things Hannah knows to be true deep down inside. And we'll have a bit of post-match analysis. I'll tell her what I've learned from today and I'll ask her what uh, she has seen in a different way. That's the sort of extra benefit you get by joining our supporters club. And here's details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.